Good morning. Good to see you this morning. I want to just mention two things to you as we get going. One, regarding interviews. Please sign up, would you? Uh, if you haven't yet, taken time to go back. There's a list out there at the Welcome Center. I'd love to sit down and just uh, talk to you uh, and listen to what you have to say. So please, if you haven't done that, you can come here or I can come to your place, but uh, really want to talk to you. And then as a representative of IPM, I can't make decisions here at the church, but I can make recommendations. And one of my jobs is to make recommendations. So can I make a recommendation to you this morning? Are you allowed to respond? Come on. Can I make a recommendation to you this morning? Okay. Because I don't want to do it if you don't want me to. That wouldn't be good. My recommendation is this, uh, and I've, my wife and I have done this for years, and I want to encourage you to do that, and that is this. I think every one of you as a family should support a missionary. We've got Ben and Nikki with us this morning as missionaries to Papua New Guinea. Great to have you guys. Got to meet you the other week. We did lunch together, and uh, Nikki, I think you're from the same area I am. It's awesome. So we got a little commonality there, but whether it's Ben or Nikki, but I do think this. I think every family should support a missionary. Now, I don't think that should affect your church giving at all. I think it ought to be additional giving, even if it's $5 a month, right? It will tie your heart to a missionary family. It'll tie your kid's heart to a missionary family. And then as a family, stay involved. As a church, stay involved. But my recommendation is keep giving to your church. Keep giving to your church. But then I just consider doing that. And if it's, whether it's them or not, but the, your missionaries are your, they are the frontline people. They're the ones that are out there. We're, they're the ones that are sent. We're the ones that stay back. Our sacrifices here should be as great as their sacrifices there. But it's going to look a little different. The church doesn't go forward by way of comfort and ease. The church moves forward by way of sacrifice. And all of us should participate in a level of sacrifice where it costs us. That's when the church moves. And that's when God does amazing things through the church. So just a challenge. Recommendation. And as with any recommendation, you can throw it back at me if you want. Or you can take it and pray about it and consider doing that. Let me ask you this. As we get into this this morning, behold uh, Jesus. Let me ask this. What is the greatest witnessing tool that's out there? Oh, there's a lot of things. Uh, I met with a missionary for crew not too long ago, and crew has a lot of different brochures that they like to use. And, and uh, when they're on the campus going with uh, challenging young people with the gospel, they'll take uh, some tracks and they'll go through some booklets or some tracks, and they're great tools. Is that the greatest tool? Sometimes people have packaged presentations of the gospel. You've heard the concept, the Romans road of salvation, or You've heard evangelism explosion, and there's these kind of packet where you package the gospel and you make a presentation of the gospel. Greatest presentation, greatest tool that we can use. Some do tracks, some do books, some do different things. But what is the greatest tool in evangelism? I'd like to suggest to you today that the greatest tool in evangelism is a life that's been transformed by the gospel. 
And I'd like us to look at that today in this passage of Scripture as we get into Luke chapter 7 this morning. And I want us to behold Jesus in the area of evangelism. As we look at him, we want to behold him. And in beholding him, we want to learn from him so that we can become like him. That's what we're doing today. Now, I just want to tell you that there's basically four groups of people in this chapter this morning. But I'd like to suggest that these four groups of people that are found in this chapter are also the four groups of people that you're going to run into in the course of your activity and living your life outside of this place here. Because the truth is, reality is most of us will spend two or three hours here on this campus. Most of our life is lived off of this place. Most of our lives is lived in a community, at a job, in a neighborhood, or wherever we might go. And I want to suggest that for each of you, you're going to run into four different groups of people. I think they're all found here. First group of people you're going to run into is hurting people. They're just hurting. And in this story, in chapter 7, there's a centurion who's really kind of favorite servant or valued servant is on the brink of death. And so this hurting individual sends another of his servant to Jesus to see if he would do anything to help his servant. He's hurting. There's also in this chapter a record of a woman whose son had died. And as you read the record of the death of her son, she is obviously hurting because all of you know this. Children are supposed to lose parents, but parents aren't supposed to lose children. And when parents lose children, it's kind of out of the order of everyday life. And as you look at this particular woman in this story, she is a hurting individual. And can you imagine the excitement in her life when Jesus came by this funeral procession, walked up to her son in a coffin, and breathed into him new life? Powerful. So you're going to run into hurting people. The second group of people that we're going to run into are sinners. You're going to run into people who are sinners. I had a, probably shouldn't do this on here, but because this guy may watch it, there's a, we put the uh, broadcast on the Facebook this past week, and some, a friend of mine from Arizona watched it, and he wrote me. And he said, to, he said to me this, he says, it was good to hear you again and see you. He said, I missed the days when we rode motorcycle together. And then he, then, he said, then he said, signed, your favorite sinner. And he was a guy that I, I, would, I would do a lot of motorcycle riding with him, and I shared the gospel with him, and I, he just said, look, I'm just too big a sinner to ever, a guy couldn't save me, I'm too big a sinner. And I'm like, you, you just don't know him. So he always kids me and says, I am your favorite biggest sinner, and I always kid back and say, you keep me praying more than anybody else on planet Earth. He watched this week, but he knows he's a sinner. And people that you're going to run into are going to be sinners, and some of them are going to know it. They're going to know it. The other group of people that you're going to run into is they're going to run into the crowd. Because as you study this chapter, you'll see that one of the groups of people that is found in this particular chapter is the crowd, because the crowd liked to follow Jesus, and the crowd was just curious as to, well, he's going to raise somebody from the dead today? Ooh, we want to watch that. 
Well, who of us wouldn't want to watch that? Or they may say, he's going to heal this leper today. We want to watch that. And so there was always a crowd that whenever they could would follow Christ. And you're going to run into people that are just out in the community. Kind of the crowd that just kind of exists out there. If something exciting happens in church, oh, the rumor goes through town, they hear about it. Something bad happens, they hear about that. It floats all out there. They're just there. And they're all over. In fact, I've noticed in Elizabethtown, there's still a lot of people that don't go to church. A lot. The other group you're going to run into is uh, you're going to run into people who are self-righteous. They kind of fall in that sinner's category, but they just don't know it. They just think they're okay. And like the presentation that Ben made today about people that are trying to earn their salvation, a lot of people like that. But they're still sinners. They're just not convinced yet that they're sinners. They think they're okay because they're doing this or doing that. And the last group you're going to run into, you're going to run into other disciples of Christ. There's about the four groups of people that are out there. And so as you think about it, we have to come to the question, how do we evangelize? How do we evangelize? Because it's great when you invite people to come to your life group, and you should invite people to come to your life group. It's great when you invite people to come to church, and you should be inviting people to come to church, because we know this, 80% of people that visit a church come because of a personal invitation. 80%. Most of the time when people come and visit your church, they're coming from another church. The ones that come that aren't churched only usually ever come because they got an invitation from someone like yourself. But even beyond inviting people to church, how do we take Jesus to them? Because the command of Scripture is not invite people to come to church, but the command of Scripture is go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. How do we do that? What does that look like? And how do we go about that? And so as we come to the passage of Scripture today, we want to say we need to behold Jesus because we want to become like him. And one of the areas where he gives us an example is in evangelism. In our passage today, we behold Jesus as he evangelizes a Pharisee. It's a great story. It's a fantastic story. And that's what this story is about. In in chapter 7, as we get into it, you're really going to see Jesus evangelizing a Pharisee. And what he does in the process, he, he uses a life that's transformed by the gospel as the living illustration of the gospel's ability to transform and Jesus' ability to transform a life. So as he... As he works with this Pharisee, what we want to see today, and our focus today, is to see the prostitute whose life is transformed. It's an interesting story. But you're also going to see that the story is not about the prostitute. She's just an illustration. The story is how Jesus evangelizes a self-righteous individual. And there's a couple things that I think you can learn from this story that I think will help you and help me in this process because evangelism is this. Evangelism is not the easiest thing in the world to do. 
Evangelism is also one of the most intimidating things out there, right? Most of us, the reason we don't do a lot of evangelism is because it's a very intimidating thing. And so there's a couple things that if you can learn today, as you behold Jesus, I really think they'll help you. But I'm also going to tell you this. It's going to call you to adjust your lifestyle. And it's going to call you to make some sacrifices and some changes and some adjustments to be able to do this. Because here's a problem. In most churches, the people of the church, most of their friends are church people. Now think about that. Most of who you run with and most of who you do things with are other church people. And that's a good thing. But it's also not a good thing. And so this message today may call you to make some adjustments. It's definitely going to call you, not so much the message, but the concepts are going to call you to learn some things and to do some homework. And just, become, just develop the ability to do some things that you may not have done, been a part of your life regularly in the past. I, I don't know, because I, obviously I don't know all of you real well. I will give you my personal story. In my personal story, the church I was a part of was much like this church. For my wife and I, we pastored, but for most of our lives, the people that we were with the most were people from the church. A couple of years ago, there was a kid from our church that was in the military, and he was uh, stationed in Afghanistan. When he came home, he was really changed. He came home with PDST. Did I say that right? Post-traumatic stress disorder. It wasn't a good thing. So when he came home, his parents asked if I would come to the airport to meet him. And I'm like, I I would love to. They said, oh, by the way, ride your motorcycle. Really? Yeah, there's going to be a few other motorcycles. Really? We got to the airport. There were more than a few other motorcycles, like 50 motorcycles. And I was introduced to a motorcycle gang. And I became a gang member that night. As I was standing on the steps at the Philadelphia airport, right next to the escalator that comes down, where we all lined up and they're all holding these big American flags and the steps are completely lined with men and women who rode their motorcycles and as this kid comes down the escalator they all just reach out and shake his hand and say thank you for your service standing next to me was a guy named Lee and Lee and I struck up a friendship that night as we stood on the steps together and Lee gave me a personal invitation to become a part of their motorcycle group My wife and I decided we were going to do that. And for the next year, two, three years, we rode motorcycles with this gang. And it changed our whole perspective. That's where I met Tamale, the world's greatest sinner, that keeps me praying constantly. We rode together. And my wife and I learned to converse with lost people. And what I learned was, because I was so ingrained in the church, I forgot how to communicate with people that weren't a part of the church. 
You see, inside the church, we have a language that's all our own. We have music that's all our own. And we guard it carefully. You know what I found when I went outside and began to work with people that weren't a part of the church? They could have cared less about the church, much less the music we ever sang. They could have cared less. I never had an argument outside the church about anything that went on inside the church. They didn't care. You know what they cared about? Their health, their motorcycles. And they'd be able to do this. What I found was this was their worship. They worshiped and they found self-gratification by doing for others what was never done for them. See, what I learned was they were all Vietnam veterans. And what I learned was when the Vietnam veterans came home, I heard stories like this. When we got to the airport, we went in the bathroom and changed out of our uniform into civilian clothes because people spit at us. Americans. And those of you that lived through that era, you know that's true. It's the one group of soldiers, sailors, Marines, and all the different groups that came home that nobody said thank you for your service. And what my wife and I learned was we were standing. They had long beards. They looked the part of a motorcycle gang. But behind the costume was a heart that was hurting. And as we began to talk to them, we began to learn how to converse with lost people. And we began to learn that what's there is a heart yearning for something that they just can't find and what we were able to say was, you can't find it outside of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And it became our mission field. The Buckners would tell you that when they went to the mission field, the first thing they had to do was learn the language. Second thing they had to do was learn the culture. And then they had to embrace themselves in that culture and begin to communicate, understanding the culture. And I would ask this, if we went around the room this morning and said, tell me about the culture out here, would we be able to give a vivid description of the culture in which we live and the people that live in that culture? How do we communicate with them? How do we give them hope? How do we evangelize them? I'm telling you, they're great stories. I also found this. When you package the gospel... And you make the gospel a program, you take the joy out of it. The gospel is not a packaged program to present. And when you begin to do evangelism the way Jesus taught it, and when you begin to evangelize the way he modeled it for us, it will stir your heart like nothing else will ever stir your heart. It will be the most enjoyable thing you will ever do. My wife and I learned, honestly, will you forgive me for saying this? Tell me yes ahead of time or I'm not saying it. We enjoyed riding our motorcycles and being with that crowd more than we enjoyed being at church. And that's sad. Do you know why? Because when we came to church, everybody was picky about what went on in church. When we rode with the motorcycle gang... They only cared about each other and their motorcycles. Don't mess with my motorcycle, man. Don't touch it. And I would just challenge you that has your environment become such that 
this place has become a picky place where we'll bite and devour each other and you go outside and be loved, we should find more love here than anywhere else. But if we're not evangelizing and we're not doing what Jesus told us to do, what's going to happen is we're going to get picky. When I was interviewed here, I told the group that interviewed me what I did at home. If people would come to me, and I haven't done this here, I haven't done this yet, but as of today, I'll have the liberty now to start doing this. When people would come to me and tell me everything wrong with their church, I would look at them and say, you're not evangelizing anybody, are you? You're not engaged with anybody who needs Christ, are you? Because if you were engaged with people that need Christ, these issues would become very minor when you understand the major then you understand the minor but when you don't understand the major the minor becomes the major and the major becomes the minor did that make sense so i want to say to you today let's behold jesus let's come with humble hearts all of us and let's ask the scriptures today and let's ask jesus and let's ask the holy spirit to teach us today to open our hearts cause us to be receptive just to learn some very simple truths. I only have two of them today that I want to teach you. The first thing I want you to see from this passage is that Jesus, Jesus models evangelism. He models evangelism. And he does so. What we learn is we, we evangelize by interacting with sinners. Now, that's a very simple truth. There's nothing profound there. But it is a profound truth. And I would say that much of our problem, our problem, I, I can't speak for you, but I can speak for my wife and I. Our problem was we weren't interacting with sinners. We weren't going out. And we weren't spending time with them. When we did go out, we knocked on our door and just said, hey, you know if you die today, if you go to heaven... Bam, door shut. We come back and say, man, we got a door slammed in our face tonight. Seriously? We champion that? Maybe the way we're approaching sinners is all wrong, and maybe we need to reapproach. And so I want you to see this passage. Let's read it. Notice in Luke chapter 7. Let's just take time to read this text. It's so powerful. It says, one of the Pharisees, beginning of verse 36. Can you start... Follow me, I'll read it. It says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. Would you like to mark your Bible? Underline that. Do you know where the best conversations always take place? Always. Where? Over a meal. Best conversations always take place around the dinner table. Right? You agree with that? Okay. Let's go on. So Mark that. Asked him to eat with him. And he, Jesus, went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, it's an interesting word. The behold word is there. Wow, this is wham. A woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Do you see that? She was weeping uncontrollably. 
to the point where the tears rolling off her cheeks caused his feet to be wet. That's a lot of tears, guys. And it says, and she wiped them with her hair, with the, with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender who had, had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and another 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one I suppose. That's an interesting statement. The one I suppose. You see, the, see kind of the unwillingness to totally concede the point? See it? I suppose, really? He should have said the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. But Jesus said, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to the woman, do you see this woman? He said, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. She has loved much, for he who is forgiven loves, uh, forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those, notice there's a lot of Pharisees at the table, then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins. And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, in this story, as it's unfolded here, you see the Pharisee. This is not, this is not a friendly environment into which Jesus enters. Jesus is going into a hostile environment because there are several Pharisees. The reason they had invited him in is because they're trying to trick him, they're trying to catch him. And they're trying to capture him so that they can, in turn, condemn him. But he goes. He goes here into a hostile environment where they're looking to corner him. But what Jesus does, he accepts the invitation and then uses it to confront, confront these individuals with the gospel. Let's talk about the prostitute for a minute. This lady is a very immoral woman. Everything she does in this story, would be considered rude. It would be considered poor etiquette. And it would be considered crude. What do you think the Pharisees were thinking when a prostitute is kissing the feet of Jesus? What do you think some of the stuff went through their mind might have been? This whole thing with the Pharisee when she's doing this to Jesus, what, 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 what do you think they're thinking? Obviously, they say, if he were a prophet, he, he wouldn't be doing this. He wouldn't be doing this. She is a very immoral woman. and He's allowing this very immoral woman to do this. Are you kidding? You see, she is the prostitute. She bursts into the house. She's weeping at Jesus' feet. 
she lets down her hair in that environment and she begins to wipe his feet with the hair of her head and then she wastes a bottle of very expensive perfume because it was in an alabaster flask and she puts it on Jesus' feet. As rude, as crude, and as poor of etiquette as could ever be found is right here. Nothing could have hit the heart of the Pharisees harder or been more offensive than what Jesus just did. But we would look at it this way. Such were some of you. But you were cleansed. You were washed. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You see, Jesus needs this Pharisee. And Jesus needs these Pharisees to see their condition is no different than that of the prostitute. But Jesus is doing all this seated around a table having conversation. And that's what we need to do. We evangelize by socializing with sinners. And if we are not willing as a church to socialize with sinners then we're just not going to be evangelizing the way Jesus did. And what we need to do is get on our face and just, again, behold Jesus. Just keep looking at Jesus. Because this is what he did. It's what he did. Let me show you the second thing that's in this passage of Scripture and wind this down real fast here because our time is slipping. The second thing Jesus does is he models evangelism. And what we learn from this is we evangelize by making truth relevant to sinners. Okay? Here's where you got to do your homework a little bit. Here's where you have to understand your culture a little bit. And here's where you need to be able to, to process and think a little bit. But it's not hard. And, and, and I really believe that God will give you incredible wisdom as you're in these situations and you can make truth relevant. Now, I want to just start out and say this. We never change the truth. We're not adjusting the truth for people, but we're making that truth relevant to those individuals in that setting. Now, I want you to see the story as it unfolds. The story was making the point of the gospel in the way that the Pharisee got it. He couldn't miss it. He, Jesus just says this. When he sees and knows what's going on in that setting because he's eating, he asks a question. He's, he just says this. Let me tell you a story. He says, there was a man who loaned money, and one of those individuals owned him 50 denarii, and one of them owned 500 denarii. Which, when he forgave their debt, which of you think appreciated it more? Easy answer, right? You know why the Pharisee said, well, I suppose that one. You know why he said that? Because he got it. Jesus had him right there, and he knew it. He knew it. But Jesus doesn't even mess with that answer. So there's a sense in which you, got, you have to learn when to go after things and when to let things go. Because evangelism is an event where you walk up and somebody just gets saved on the spot. Evangelism is a process 
one plants, one waters, God ultimately gives the increase. And you will find that when evangelism takes place, there's usually a trail of somebody that has planted, somebody that has watered. And over the course of time, God does the work in the heart to get the heart ready. So evangelism being a process, there are many people involved in that process. There are people who share truth. There are people who are praying. In fact, I don't think anybody ever gets saved until somebody prays. Somebody is praying for the salvation of individuals. And what happens in this story is it, it, he, Jesus got him. But he didn't go after the I suppose. He just said, Simon, you, you answered that correctly. The one who is forgiven sin has more sin is the one who is going to love the Savior more because they're forgiven more. He got it. And he also got the point is, you're the one here thinking you're not a sinner. That's why you don't appreciate me. That's why you don't want me. I love to do this. I told you I do a lot of funerals. I, I, in, in funerals, if I have the liberty from the family to do, share a little scripture, I'll always open with this. All of you guys in here believe the Bible. You just don't know it. And I, I'll say this. It's appointed unto people once to die. I said, you know, it's in the Bible. I said, nobody's ever escaped it yet. So you all believe the Bible, right? Well, yeah, but I don't, yeah, that's all I need, a yeah. All I need is a yeah. Because if I can get you to say I believe part of it, then give us time, we'll show you more of it. And in this story, that's what he does. So he, his response, he acknowledges a spiritual truth. But that spiritual truth is put forth in a physical story. Now, here's where you have to get this. People live in a physical, real world. Most of them don't live in a spiritual world. You do. But here's where the task gets fun, I think, and, and here's where you have to think. We have to relate truth to them in terms that they understand. They understand the physical world in which they live. And most of the things in the physical world are parallel to life in the spiritual world. For instance, how did everybody get into planet Earth as a person? They were born. How do you get into God's kingdom? And how do you get salvation? You're born again. The truths of the physical run parallel to the truths of the spiritual. You have to learn, talk to them on the level of the physical. Because the natural man doesn't understand the things of the spirit. They're foolishness unto him. But what you have to do with them is just talk about children, talk about marriage, talk about their life, talk about their world. And what you're going to find is the physical life and the physical realities of life will open the window to the spiritual world and you'll be able to present truth. Like, who do you think appreciated being forgiven? The one who owed 500 denarii or the one who owed 50 denarii? But it paralleled forgiveness of sin. And Jesus knew it, hit him with it, and the Pharisee got it. He got it. He knew what Jesus was doing, I suppose. Yeah, right. <laughs> I suppose. You see, the Pharisee just basically said, ouch. But then the result was Jesus turned to this and said, your sins are forgiven. And he forgave the prostitute her sins. And the Pharisee sat there and said, how could he forgive a prostitute? 
because the prostitute came and knew who he was. And she acted according. You didn't give me water to wash my feet. She washes my feet with her tears. You gave me no oil for my head. She broke an expensive alabaster flask and poured expensive perfume. She was capable of buying it because she was a prostitute. Trust me, the Pharisees knew that. See, it was all her relationship to Jesus was a relationship of, I'm a sinner. I'm bowing at your feet because I'm a great sinner. And Jesus turns and says, then I forgive you. Now I want to quit this morning with this. Why should we do this? Why should we behold Jesus? And why should we learn two simple truths? One, interact with sinners. Two, learn to make the truth relevant to sinners. Why should we do this? Because we're the prostitute. In this story... The prostitute paints the picture of us. We're not the self-righteous man. We're the one who bowed at Jesus' feet because we understood our sin. And she paints the picture of who we were without Christ. And in her coming to Jesus and bowing at his feet and doing what she did, she paints the picture of one who comes knowing They're unworthy, but recognizing the worth and the value of the person of Jesus. We're the prostitute. If you want to paint a picture of sinners, here it is right here. And when Jesus was willing to forgive us, trust me, don't look at this prostitute and think, boy, her sins were really bad. They were worse than mine ever were. No, they weren't. No, they weren't. And if you're looking at this prostitute and you're saying she was a sinner, I'm not, then you identify today with a Pharisee and you're in need of a Savior to forgive you of your sin. And he will do that today if you'll just recognize that the sins that you have committed are just as bad as any sin that the prostitute ever committed. And we need to see that's who we are in this story. And what God does in our lives is God takes us when we recognize that we're the prostitute, we're the sinner that came for the forgiveness, and when we bow at Jesus' feet, he transforms our life. And I take you back to where we started. What is the greatest witnessing tool that there is? What Jesus now does is he takes us, who were the prostitute, whose life is transformed by the gospel, And Jesus puts our life in front of others so that they can see the transformation. Just like he wanted to see, he's evangelized the Pharisee, he wanted the Pharisee to see what salvation was all about. He needed the prostitute as an illustration to show the Pharisee. And what he does with all of you is he takes your transformed life, and through your transformed life, he puts salvation on display. And he says to people, as you interact with them, see, there's a sinner I transformed their life. You are the greatest witnessing tool that is out there. We interact with sinners because Jesus is going to take our transformed life and he's going to use our life to show others 
who he is and what the gospel has power to do. That's why we do this. Have any of you ever heard this term or this phrase or have any of you ever heard this said, God doesn't use dirty vessels? Have any of you ever heard that? One or two? A couple of you? I want to tell you something. God does use dirty vessels. It's all he has. He's the only clean vessel. But because he's a clean vessel, he takes those of us who are dirty vessels and he washes us with the gospel. And that transformed life is a powerful witness and a powerful testimony. And that's why you need to interact with sinners so they can see what the gospel and what Jesus has done in your life and is doing. Get it? Good. I'm going to pray. The band's going to come. We're going to sing, and then PJ's going to come and close us out. Father, thank you for transforming our life with the gospel. Thank you for Jesus, who is still in the process of evangelizing, still has sinners that he wants to save, and a lot of them still live in Elizabethtown. And I pray, Lord, that each of us here today would just catch the concept that we need to socialize and we need to interact with sinners because in that setting, God is going to put a display in front of them of a transformed life and show them what Jesus and the gospel can do through an individual. I pray, Lord, that this church would be challenged to get out of this building and to intentionally get into the community, learn the culture, learn the language, and then interact with sinners that live in this culture. And God, I pray that we would be in the world, but not of the world. We're not going in there to be like them. We're going in there so they can be like Jesus. And they can see what it's like and what it looks like to be like Jesus. Because they can see our lives. Use us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.